Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 24 and 25 today. Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. The title of our message is God's Design of Marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. And uh, if you will, if you're able to, as you turn to that passage, if you would stand, if you'll follow along in your copy as I read from God's Word. The text of Scripture says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The Word of God for His church today. You may be seated. About 18 years ago, my parents decided to build a house. My dad wanted to design it himself, but amazingly, he needed my help. I say amazingly because I don't really know anything about designing a house. I especially didn't 18 years ago. Um, But because I was a part of the younger generation, right, he assumed I could figure out the computer part of it the computer software part. And so we went to the store and we, we found this computer software uh, that helps you design and draw out house plans. And I worked and figured out how it worked. And he drew up the plans on a piece of paper with a ruler and a pencil. And then he handed those plan- plans off to me. And I took those plans and I drew them out using the computer software. Then we printed that out. He took that blueprint to a, a printer who, who made it really big so you could see it. Uh, and, and then he printed that out on that large paper, that blueprint paper. My dad took that to a contractor, and that contractor used those plans to put the foundation in and uh, put the walls up, the framing of the house, and put the roof on that house. And if you walk through my parents' house today, you'll see a home which exactly matches that blueprint that we handed to the contractor. The contractor was able to match the build to the design because, to my dad's credit, it was a good design. It was a good design. And and the result of that good design was a wonderful house for our family. You see, every house that is built begins with a design. If the design is good, then all the builder needs to do is follow that design, follow that blueprint, and the house will be good. Church family, God has given us in His Word His good design for marriage. We don't have to figure it out as we go. And because it's coming from a God who is good in every way, we can know and we can trust that His design for marriage is good. He spreads the blueprint out on the table in Genesis chapter 2 and He says, here you go. Here is my good design for marriage, and this design will always be the only right and good blueprint for marriage. Church, God's design of marriage provides a timeless blueprint for the most foundational human relationship. God's design of marriage provides a timeless blueprint for the most foundational human relationship. The very first human relationship that we see in the Bible is one of marriage. Have you ever thought about that? The first human relation, not the first relationship because Adam had a relationship with God even before Eve was created, but the first human relationship in the Bible is one of marriage. And I don't think that is coincidental nor unimportant. I believe God gives us marriage as the first human relationship in the world because it is the bedrock relationship of any and every human society. Destroy marriage. Twist marriage into something other than God's design and that society will at best experience something less than the human flourishing that God intends for humanity or at worst that society will fall into complete chaos and ultimately destruction. Now, I didn't say that marriage is a necessary relationship for every single individual in society. Not what I mean by the most foundational relationship. There are legitimate reasons, even from God's Word, for a person not to get married. Though I think Scripture would testify to the fact that that would be the exception and not the norm. 
However, that doesn't change the fact that marriage is the most foundational human relationship for any society, for the world and God has made. But before we look at God's blueprint for marriage, and we're going to spend most of our time looking at that blueprint today, I want us to answer this question. Why can't marriage be whatever we want it to be? Why can't marriage be whatever we want it to be? Certainly that seems to be the attitude of the world around us, that we can define marriage however we want, in our own terms. Church, the first thing we need to know about marriage is this. That's that God is the owner of marriage. He's the owner of marriage. Marriage belongs to Him. In Genesis 2, we have what I like to call the very first wedding ceremony. I think you could call it that. But I want you to see who comes up with it all. Who thought up this thing called marriage in the first place? Was Adam and Eve sitting there in the garden wondering, what kind of relationship are we going to have with one another? And they threw around some ideas, had a brainstorming session, um, drew out some thought bubbles, you know, and said, what, what, are, we, what, are, we, what are we going to do? And, and somewhere they figured out, oh, well, let's, let's get married. And then they say, well, what's, what's that going to mean? And they list out all the details. No, 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 no. Who thought up this thing called marriage? Who comes up with it all? It's a short answer. God. God. Notice back in verse 22 that God brings the woman to the man. God, in a sense, arranges the first marriage. And then God inspired the timeless blueprint for marriage we see in verse 24. The first and perhaps the most important thing we need to see about marriage is that God owns it. Marriage belongs to Him. It was His idea. Humans did not come up with it, which means He gets to set the terms. He gets to make the rules. He gets to design it however He wants, and whatever design He lays out is final. It doesn't matter what a culture celebrates or what a government legislates or what you feel or what your preferences are. What matters is who the designer of marriage is. And the designer is God. What matters is what the designer has designed. God is the owner of marriage. We must start there. But next we see that God graciously has revealed His design to us. It would be one thing for God to have this design in His mind, but say, well, I'm not going to let them know. I'm going to make them figure it out on their own. No, He doesn't do that. He graciously reveals to us what His design for marriage is. God has revealed His design for marriage. And it is a design, hear this, it is a design which is to be applied in every marriage, in all places, in all times. That's why I'm saying it's a timeless blueprint. It's not a blueprint that was good back then, but now we have changed and it's the past. It's not up to date. No, God's blueprint for marriage is always up to date. It's timeless. And so let's roll out God's timeless blueprint for marriage, examine it, compare our own lives to it, repent of any sin God's Word exposes, and then let's pursue what is God's best as we apply His Word to our lives. I want to share with you four truths regarding God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage. What do we learn here in verses 24 and then into verse 25? First thing we learn about God's design for marriage is this. God designed marriage to be the union of a man and a woman only. God designed marriage to be the union of a man and a woman only. Let's not miss the obvious in this first marriage. Let's not miss the obvious. This first marriage was a marriage between a man and a woman. We've spent several weeks studying Genesis chapter 2 and God's design of man and woman. This was the man that God made from the dust. Earlier in chapter 2, this is the woman that God made from the man's rib later in chapter 2. And if we are tempted, as some today have suggested, um, I say today just meaning today in our society, as some have suggested that if we're tempted to think that the first man was some sort of genderless person or somehow these two were somehow not a man and not a woman, well, you can just skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 1. And you're going to find that these two people who get married at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 4, verse 1, they have a child together. 
And I know it's not politically correct to say this these days, but every single child that has ever been born comes from a man and a woman. This first marriage, which is to serve as the blueprint for all marriages, is the union of a man and a woman. And what this means for marriage is that when any person seeks to enter into a marriage relationship with someone of the same gender, a man with a man or a woman with a, with a woman, that union is sinful in the eyes of God. It's sinful. It's, it's, it's against the Creator's design. It is a rejection of God and who He is and how He has created this world. It violates His creation order. It violates His design for marriage. And God's design for marriage as we see here, the fact that it's a man and a woman, and as we see throughout the rest of Scripture, forbids homosexuality. We see this as a consistent theme throughout the pages of Scripture. The Bible speaks as a whole to this issue. In Genesis chapter 19, God destroys the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for many sins, but one of the many sins that city was guilty of, which is highlighted in Genesis 19, is the sin of homosexuality. Leviticus chapter 20, God forbid the nation of Israel from practicing homosexuality very explicitly. In Romans chapter 1, Paul very clearly points to homosexuality as an extreme perversion of God's created order. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists homosexuality in a list alongside various other sins, including the sin of being greedy, the sin of being a drunkard, And other sins. And he says that some in the Corinthian church once had been engaged in those sins. But now, he says, they had been washed. They had been sanctified. They had been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, the first thing that means is that he's calling homosexuality a sin. In other words, homosexuality, just like any other form of sexual immorality, just like greed, just like drunkenness, just like gossip, you just fill in the blank with whatever sin, it's not a lifestyle to be celebrated, but it is a sin to be repented of. It's not a lifestyle to be celebrated, it is a sin to be repented of. And praise God, praise God that Jesus died to save all who repent of their sin, regardless of whatever sin they have committed. I'm so thankful for that in my life. That God died to rescue me from all of my sin. Friends, it doesn't matter what sin you have committed. It needs to be repented of. And praise God, Jesus died to rescue you from whatever sins you have committed. Before I move on, I think we also can safely say that Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, not only shows us that homosexuality is wrong, but I think we can safely say here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, along with the rest of Scripture, that this design for marriage also forbids marriage between an adult and a child, as well as between a human and an animal. Friends, I just want you to know we live in a society where I feel the need to say that feel the need to say that. Marriage as God designed it is to be between a man and a woman only. The second truth we learn about God's design for marriage is this. God's design uh, has designed marriage to be the union of only one man and one woman. I know that sounds very similar to the the, the first truth, but I'm going to show you how that's different, okay? God designed marriage to be the union of only one man and one woman. That sounds a lot like the first truth, but the emphasis here is not on a man and a woman, but on the number, okay? Emphasis here is on the number, only one man and one woman. Not between a man and many women, not between a woman and many men, not between many men and many women. It's very clear here. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They're singular. They're one. In other words, we can again safely say that God's design for marriage rules out polygamy, which is the practice of having more than one husband or more than one wife at the same time, which I might add I do feel the need to say in our society today to make that point because that practice is on the rise. It is even being legislated as legal. 
and communities in our nation. One man, one woman, no more, no less. Now, some people would argue, even from Scripture, that Scripture contradicts itself here. They would point to the Old Testament and they would say, well, man, just read the Old Testament and we see polygamy being practiced all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And my response to that is, yeah, we see a whole host of other sins being committed all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Just because we see something happen in the Bible doesn't mean God approves of it. God includes all the messiness of life in a fallen world in his, in his word as well. God never says that that is a good thing. In fact, as we see it practiced in the Old Testament, what we see is that it leads to a lot of heartache for the people who engage in it. And, and, and later on in our study of Genesis, we're going to look at some of these families. One family in particular, you know Jacob, right? The son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Well, he married two wives. Crazy story there. It was not a good thing. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of jealousy. There was a lot of rivalry. And it pretty much followed him throughout the rest of his life. Now, did God still use him and use the children that came from that? Absolutely. Those 12 sons became 12 tribes of Israel. But that's not, that's not affirming those simple practices. All that is doing is highlighting God's graciousness and his sovereignty to work his will through the midst of a simple world even though those people should not have made those choices. God designed marriage to be the union of only one man and one woman. The third truth we learn about God's design for marriage is this. God designed marriage to be the formation of a new family unit. A new family unit. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here we want to highlight this word, leave. There's a leaving aspect of marriage. The man, and therefore it's implied here that the woman as well, must leave their parents as part of that marriage. Listen, this is, a, this is not a small word in the Hebrew. This is no small statement that was being made to the Israelites as Moses wrote this book of Genesis. In the Israelite community in which Genesis was written, the only thing that came before Honoring your father and your mother was honoring God. That's it. Honoring your father and mother was really, really, really high in that culture. Only thing that came before that was honoring God. And so, which is very different than our society in a way, because our, their society is tied very much to family. We live in a very individualistic society, so sometimes it's hard for us to feel the weight of what he's saying here. For God to say, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, revealed, especially in that context, the extreme priority that God intends for couples to place on their marriage relationship. What does this mean? What does this leaving mean practically? I think it means far more than merely a physical leaving. I mean, you can get married, move a thousand miles away from your parents and still have a very unhealthy attachment to them that will bring a lot of harm into your marriage. It must mean more than just a physical leaving. I think what this means practically, is to offer some suggestions to you, is that if you're married, your husband or your wife's needs get placed before your parents' needs in your life. Even though Scripture does call us to care for our parents. Scripture does call us to do that. But the priority, the relationship which takes priority in our life over any other relationship is marriage if we are married. It means you go to your spouse first with struggles before you run to your parents. It means that when you have an argument with your spouse, you don't immediately call up mom and start complaining to her saying, do you know what he just did? Do you know what she just did? That's not prioritizing your marriage relationship. That's an unhealthy attachment. First, you sit down with your spouse. You need to discuss what is going on with him or her. Does this mean you never seek advice from your parents once you're married? No, 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 no. We don't want to go to that extreme. Of course not. If we're blessed with good parents who have a track record of making wise choices, especially parents who love the Lord and put Him first in their lives, then we ought to honor them by, by seeking out their advice, listening to them, 
learning from them and their experience, but only after we've discussed the issue with our spouse and only with the understanding that it is only advice and we as a married couple will make the final decision together, the two of us. Now I think there's also application for parents here. Parents, when your child gets married, you need to let your child leave. Sometimes leaving is difficult but the child, because the child doesn't want to leave, wants to stay attached to mommy and daddy. But sometimes leaving is difficult because the parents keep hanging on. They keep hanging on. Hanging on to their married son or married daughter, acting like he or she still belongs to them. When God's Word says that we, if we are married, belong to our spouse. The man belongs to his wife. And the wife, the woman, belongs to her husband. Now, obviously, obviously, there's unique circumstances we could talk about and lots of, lots of questions depending on unique situations and all of that. Just offering some kind of general uh, suggestions for you as to so what this looks like, this leaving part looks like in practice. Let me, let me just give you a few questions to think about. Who do you run to first with either good news or bad news? Your parents or your spouse? Does the way you interact with your parents and the way you handle their advice and opinions reveal to your spouse that you are more devoted to your spouse or more devoted to your parents? Do you put more value on your parents' opinions or your spouse's opinions? If there's a disagreement between your parents and your spouse, what's your default position? Do you default to your parents or do you default to your spouse? Does the way you talk about your spouse to your parents reveal that you have left them for him or her, or does it reveal that you are really still hanging on to them? When your parents say, hey, you should blank. Hey, y'all should blank. Fill in the blank, whatever, whatever they are giving as a suggestion or advice. Do you just say, oh yeah, I'm going to go do it, and don't ever talk to your spouse? Or, or, or do you go home and say, hey, my mom said we should do this, and so that's what we're going to do? Or, or do you go and say, you know what, my parents said we should think about doing this. Um, and I want us to think about that. I have some thoughts about it, but I want to hear your thoughts. You see, at that point, you're valuing that relationship, placing a priority on that. That's part of leaving. It's not just a one-time deal, moving out of the house. It's a daily thing, leaving, where you place the priority on your marriage relationship. And I'll finish this point simply by saying that there is a way, because God has told us to do both of these. And so there is a way to both honor your parents and to leave your parents when you're married. And by God's grace, we will do both of them well. God designed marriage to form a new family unit separate from parents. And the fourth truth, and this is where we're going to camp out for pretty much the rest of our time here today. The fourth truth is this. God designed marriage to be a lifelong covenantal union. God designed marriage to be a lifelong covenantal union. Church, here we really come to the heart of marriage. Notice what the text says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. We're going to unpack that. But let me just say this up front as simply as I know how. Simply as I know how. What is God's design for marriage? It is this. God's design for marriage is that one man marries one woman and they stay married until one of them dies. That's the Zach Little version of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That one man marries one woman, and they remain married to one another until one of them dies. That is God's timeless blueprint. Marriage is to be a lifelong covenant. Let's look at this word used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and then I'm going to uh, try to explain why I use the word lifelong, and then explain why we use the word covenant or covenantal when we speak of marriage. This word in the Hebrew that's used here can be translated a variety of ways. In fact, when I said um, hold fast, you probably thought, well, my, my translation says uh, maybe a little something different. 
Well, you can translate a lot of different ways. It's translated different ways in, in God's Word. You, 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 and you could say cleave to. Some translations say that. Cleave to. Or it might say joined to. Or united to. Or cling to. Or hold fast to. I like to describe this word this way. When you get married, you make a choice from that day forward. It's a daily choice. You make a choice from that day forward that you will hold tightly to your spouse and refuse to let go no matter what comes your way. That's how I like to explain that word there. Whatever, whatever, um, however you translate that word, cleave to, cling to, hold fast to, join to, united to, it means that you make a choice to hold tightly to your spouse from that day forward and no matter what comes your way, you don't let go. That's God's design for marriage. The Hebrew word used here is used many times in the Old Testament. It's interesting. I, I, I find it fascinating. I think helpful as we think about how it's used here in the context of marriage to look at some of the other ways it's used. This word is used to refer to someone's tongue sticking to the roof of their mouth because they are basically dying of thirst. That stickiness, when you just, I mean, you can't swallow, you know what I mean? I mean, you're, i got to get some water if you've ever been there, and your tongue just sticks to your, 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 the roof of your mouth. That's how this word is used some places in Scripture. It's used to refer to a waist belt or a girdle clinging to a person's waist. We don't want those falling off. It's used to refer to a person clinging to the Word of God. This word is used to refer to a person who's clinging to sin rather than turning from it. It's used to refer, I like this one. I like when it's used uh, this way in God's Word. It's used to refer to a soldier who has fought so hard and for so long that his hand is cramped up around his sword and he can't even let go of it. It's just stuck in his hand. Maybe you've, maybe you've been there with like a weed eater or something. You've been weed eating so long and, and you go to let go of it and your hand's just kind of cramped up around it. It's used of a soldier um, in that same situation, but with a sword. We can't let go of it, even if he wanted to. He's held on to it so tightly for so long. It's sometimes used to refer to a people not deserting their king when a lot of other people are turning their back on their king. But some of these people have chosen not to desert. They've chosen to stick by the king's side and to remain loyal to him. It's another way it's used. I like this one. It's used. This word is used in the Bible of Ruth. It's used, if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, Ruth refused to leave her widowed mother-in-law. But it was a, it was a costly choice because it meant she was going to have to leave her homeland, Ruth was going to have to leave her homeland and move to a foreign land in order to stick next to, cling to, cleave to her mother-in-law. But she chose to do that anyway. And finally, it is used many times in God's Word in reference to commands to God's people to hold fast to Him, to cling to Him and to His ways. That's the Word. And then we look at it in the context in which it's used here. It's followed by this phrase, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Of course, the language one flesh certainly speaks to the physical aspect of marriage, but it means more than that. In a mysterious way, two people become one in a marriage relationship. Two people become one in a marriage relationship. And God doesn't join two people together with the intention of them separating. And when they do, it's a mess. Because He didn't join them together with the intention of them separating. He joined them together with the intention of them remaining together. Just as, this is the interpretation that Jesus held to. I'm not making this up. This is the interpretation that Jesus held to of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. When, when asked a question about marriage and the legitimacy of divorce, Jesus replied, But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. This is why we say these truths are timeless. He goes back several thousand years later. People are asking a question about what's right and wrong in marriage, and he goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's timeless. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave us. This is Jesus talking. This isn't, I'm not reading from Genesis. I'm reading uh, from Matthew and Mark. Therefore, Jesus says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus gives his interpretation. So this is God interpreting God's word for us. 
that Jesus says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. I think that's hilarious and sad at the same time. It's sad because Jesus feels that we are so slow at understanding and paying attention to his word that he feels he has to state the obvious. But it's kind of funny too. You see what he said? He said, he quotes this, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. (laughs) That's kind of funny and sad. He reads the Bible and he says, you know what that means? And he just reads the Bible again. Because it's so obvious. But we miss the obvious in our sin. And then he finishes with this statement. He continues his interpretation. He says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. To which his disciples replied, Well, if that's the case, it's better not to get married. That's what his disciples said when Jesus said that. They're like, What? That's too high of a standard. It's better not to get married. To which Jesus replied and basically said this. This is the exact little version. Matthew 19, you can go read it on your own. This is my version. Jesus replies to his disciples who said, well, if that's the case, if if you're supposed to get married and stay married, then we should just not get married. And Jesus basically said, if you don't think you can follow the blueprint, don't pick up the hammer and start to build. That's a good summary of what Jesus says in his reply. In other words, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you're right. That's just too hard of a standard. To get married and stay married... Let me lower the standard, make it a little bit easier for for you. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus' reply is this. Well, that's how it is. So if you can receive it, receive it. That's the word hold fast or cling to. But then the question is for how long? For how long should I cling to my spouse? I think the implied answer here in the blueprint for marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, what God intended from the beginning is your whole life your whole life or we could say the whole life of your spouse now i don't know i know it doesn't say that explicitly explicitly in genesis chapter 2 verse 24 but it never says in here that you can stop holding fast it just says hold fast basically hold fast and keep holding fast hold fast and keep holding fast the only sure thing that would prevent you from choosing to hold fast would be death But I'm even more comfortable saying that this is the proper interpretation because that's exactly what God's Word says later in His Word. Again, we're just letting Scripture interpret Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, Paul says this, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Meaning she needs to marry only in the Lord. Meaning she needs to marry a believer, not an unbeliever. A wife is bound to her husband for how long? As long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes, and the opposite would apply. If the husband's wife dies, he is free at that point to be married to whom she wishes. And then you can add to whom he wishes, I'm sorry. And then added to that verse, getting letting Scripture um, interpret Scripture, added to that verse is Jesus' statement. Again, let's just go, go to what Jesus said regarding marriage in heaven. He was posed a question regarding a hypothetical woman who had several husbands throughout her life. The first died, she remarried. The second died, she remarried. The third died, she remarried, and so on and so forth. They pose this this hypothetical problem in their minds to Jesus, and they say, well, Jesus, who's going to be your husband in heaven? Jesus doesn't sit around and go, you know what, I never thought about that one. He knows, he knows. Jesus answered that we will not be married to one another in heaven, so it won't be a problem. What does that teach us about marriage? It lasts as long as we're alive here on this earth. It's lifelong. When either the husband or the wife dies, the marriage ends. And it ends at that point forever. But it is not to end until death do us part. Until death do us part. So that's the link in God's design for marriage. Now, I want us to look at this word covenant that I use. It said it's a lifelong covenant. A covenantal relationship. A covenantal union. What what do we mean by that? It's an important word. When you are making a covenant, you are promising to do something even if the other person doesn't deserve for you to keep your promise. Let me say that one more time. This is what a covenant is. When you make a covenant with someone, you are promising to do what you, you're promising to keep doing what you have promised to do even if the other person doesn't deserve for you to keep your promise. Or you can say it this way, even if the other person doesn't keep his or her end of the bargain 
but I don't like to use the word bargain, but it kind of helps us understand what we're saying here. Marriage is not a contract. It's not contractual. It is covenantal. When you have a contract, both parties agree to uphold their end of the deal only as long as the other party upholds their end of the deal. For instance, if I enter into contract into a contract to purchase 100 tomatoes from you this year, as long as they are all at least a half pound or greater in size, then I am obligated to purchase 100 pounds of tomatoes from you that are at least a half pound in size. But if you start handing over quarter pound tomatoes, well, our tomato relationship is over. I'm going and finding some other tomatoes. I'm going to find some tomatoes that actually fill up my sandwich, right? And I want those little ones. I want the big ones. That, that relationship is over. It's a contract. As soon as one party doesn't uphold their end of the agreement, it's off. It's over. That's not what marriage is. If I make a covenant with you to buy tomatoes from you, then even if those tomatoes start to get a little too small in size, and that's what you show up at my house with, I've made a covenant with you, I'm going to keep my promise to buy a hundred tomatoes from you. When we say that marriage is a covenant, we mean that it is the type of relationship where I promise to hold fast to my wife in the bond of marriage, even if my wife fails to love me the way that she has promised to love me. Friends, when two sinners get married, which they're all sinners, neither of us are ever going to love one another perfectly. If marriage was a contract, marriage wouldn't last maybe past the honeymoon. But it's not. The primary place we see this covenantal language used in Scripture is when God describes His relationship with His people. This is where we have the, the picture of what marriage is supposed to be. Supposed to portray. God enters into a covenant with his people, which means he keeps loving them even when they fail to love him. We see this covenantal relationship on display all throughout the Old Testament history of Israel as they turn their back on God over and over and over, but God continues to pursue them and love them and keep his promise to send a Messiah. We see this covenantal relationship pictured in Hosea's relationship with his wife Gomer, where as she pursues other men, he continues to pursue her as his wife. It's absolutely incredible. And yet, that's the picture of a covenant that God gives us in his marriage. We most clearly see this reality of covenant in the deep connection the New Testament makes between human marriage and the relationship between Jesus and his church. The church is called the bride of Christ, which makes Jesus the groom. Without going into a lot of specific verses in the Bible, which we could, let me just ask you, when has or when will Jesus desert His people, His bride, the church? When will that happen? The answer is never. Why? Because He has promised to save His people from their sin. He has promised to provide us a place in heaven. He has promised to give us life with Him beyond the grave. And even though we fail Him time and time again, He is keeping His promise and will keep His promise, His covenant to the end. More specifically, it's a new covenant is what he calls it. And God always keeps his promises. You say, Zach, well, that's all well and good for God's relationship with us. But certainly, that's too big of a leap to say that my marriage is supposed to be modeled after the way that Christ loves his church. That my relationship is supposed to somehow imitate the relationship that God has with his people. I mean, I'm, he's God. I'm not. I, in a way, agree. It does seem a bit crazy and a bit scary for those of us who are married to say that we are to model our marriage relationship after the relationship that Jesus has with His church, God's relationship with us. But that, again, is exactly how Scripture interprets Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus about marriage, makes a parallel between the husband and Christ on the one hand and the wife and the church on the other. And then after clearly stating how the wife is to portray the role of the church and how the husband is to portray the role of Christ in the marriage, Paul says this. He says, 
Therefore, you know what's coming next. Therefore, Paul says, to the church at Ephesus, several thousand years after Genesis' account took place, Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, This mystery is profound. Amen, Paul. It is profound, and it seems to be pretty mysterious. It's hard to wrap our minds around it. Paul says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He quotes this, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and says, it's about Jesus and his church. Wait wait a second, Paul, I thought we were talking about marriage between man and a woman, and now you say it's about Jesus and his church. Well, then what does Paul say? Without even taking a breath, he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see what Paul's doing? He quoted Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Then he said it was a profound mystery and that God's blueprint for marriage in Genesis is really all about Jesus and the church. And then he immediately applied that truth to the relationship between a man and a woman who are married to one another. Thus, his words that this mystery is profound. I think the point is this. We can say that marriage is a covenant because it is. Please get this. It is and always has been intended by God to be a temporary picture of the eternal reality of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And that relationship is a covenantal relationship. And so as long as Jesus holds fast to his church, husbands and wives are to hold fast to one another. Otherwise, we fail to paint an accurate picture of Christ's relationship with his church. And unfortunately, even within the church, looking at even the divorce rate in the church reveals that we often paint an inaccurate picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church for the world around us. Church, this holding fast means we fight for our marriage through the ups and the downs of life. It means we exclude all others from intruding into our marriage. We should have eyes for our spouse only. We should run from all temptation to let go of our spouse and hold on to another, whether that other is someone we know personally or someone on a screen. We should have physical desires for our spouse only. Holding fast means we don't exit the moment our spouse sins against us or disappoints us or fails to live up to our expectations. Now, obviously, because of sin, the application of this is not always as cut and dry as we might like. For instance, just one example, in no way am I advocating that a woman whose husband is physically harming her should remain in that home and endure the harm just because she thinks she's not allowed to go somewhere safe. And that's just one example. This is a messy issue. There's a lot of things that we could talk about with it, a lot of situations. But I want to I focus not on any exceptions or any other situations. I want to focus, I want our folk time today to highlight God's original intention. And here's why. Our tendency is never to drift toward too high a standard for marriage. Our tendency as people who struggle with sin is to drift towards too low a standard for marriage. And so I want to wave the banner high for God's standard for marriage. I want to emphasize how marriage is supposed to be done. And in so doing, give us a picture of a marriage that's worth fighting for. In the midst of all the cultural confusion regarding marriage which surrounds us and in the midst of all the sinful desires which wage, which wage war within us, my goal today has been to explain to you God's design for marriage and to uphold that design at, not merely as an unattainable ideal but as the timeless blueprint given in God's Word according to which every couple should strive as much as it is within them to build their marriage upon. God designed marriage to be a lifelong covenantal union and and that's God's basic blueprint. That's God's timeless blueprint. That's His profound blueprint. That is His perfect blueprint for marriage. And yet, whether you're married now, have been married in the past, or have never been married in your life, You can look at your own marriage or the marriages around you and you can see that something has gone wrong. 
What a beautiful picture of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. But something has gone wrong. Some of us might describe marriage in more positive terms. Some of us, depending on the situations, the home in which we were raised, situation in our own marriage, might describe marriage in more negative terms. But we can all agree that no marriage we've ever seen has been perfect. Or as Scripture says here in Genesis 2, 1, very good, meaning perfect. What happened? Well, sin is what happened. It's not that the blueprint was bad. It's that humans messed it up. Humanity rebelling against God is what happened. Our sin is the problem, not marriage. Or we could say it this way, God's design of marriage is good. Our disruption of that design is not good. Our twisting of that design is not good. Our rejection of God's design is not good. The last verse in Genesis chapter 2, I think, is really meant to draw us forward into the next chapter. And though we're going to study this next chapter in more detail in the coming weeks, I think it's important before we close to see how what comes next in Genesis relates to marriage. And so the last truth I want to share with you today is really con- is our conclusion. And it's this. Church family, God is the owner of marriage. God is the designer of marriage. But praise the Lord, God provides a sacrifice to redeem marriage. God provides a sacrifice to redeem marriage. Chapter 2, verse 25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Do you know what it means that they were not ashamed? It means that there was no sin causing interference in their relationship. But everything changed in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned. The result was that they immediately felt shame. They tried to cover up their own shame with their own thoughts about how they could do that, and it didn't work. We see Adam blaming Eve, which means now there's discord in their marriage relationship. Why? Because of sin. And because the consequence of sin is death, we should see the end of their marriage in chapter 3, but we don't. What we see is God graciously sacrificing an innocent animal in order to cover Adam and Eve's shame. And by the next chapter, chapter 4, instead of seeing the death of their marriage, we see that their marriage is lasting and that it is producing offspring, offspring which would eventually lead to the promised Messiah who would be the ultimate sacrifice to redeem us from our sins, to forgive us, and to give sinful people married to one another the hope that they can have a marriage that brings God honor and glory. So much could be said, but my point is simply this. Without God providing a sacrifice to cover the shame of our sin, marriage cannot be all that God designed it to be. Because God has provided a sacrifice. Because God sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross to take our shame upon Himself. We can be redeemed and marriage can be redeemed. And we can, church. We can pursue God's design for marriage as believers regardless of what has happened in our past. But only if we repent of our sin and believe in Jesus for salvation and then walk in that Gospel grace each day treating one another in marriage the way God has treated us us with unending love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And sometimes that is a moment-by-moment choice that we have to make. Summarize it this way, church. Because of sin, building a marriage according to God's design is difficult. But because of God's provision of Jesus as a sacrifice, Building a marriage according to God's design is not impossible. What we need are God and His grace at the center of our marriages. What we need in our marriages more than anything else is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So my question in closing is this. Do you have Jesus? Or better yet, does Jesus have you? opening chapters of the Bible describe a marriage between a man and a woman. But do you know the closing chapters of the Bible describe a marriage between Jesus and the church? And it's a marriage that lasts forever. Will you be a part of that final, eternal wedding through faith in Jesus Christ? And if you're married here, you're here today, you're married, right here on this earth, will you point others to that final marriage through your relationship with your spouse. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, this is it's a lot. But Lord, I don't know exactly, but I think I think it's safe to say that Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 is perhaps one of the most quoted verses in all of the New Testament. This is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. Not merely, not merely because it serves the blueprint for this foundational relationship of human society, but because God, marriage between a man and a woman, is intended by you to point to something far greater. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The relationship between Jesus and his church. So God, my prayer for all of us today, as we have been confronted with your word, is this, that we would take your word at face value, not twist it to, 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 to fit our own our own situation, but just take it for what it is. Compare our lives to it. If there's any sin in our lives, that we would repent of those sins if we have not done so. That we would then rest in Your grace to forgive us. And then that we would pursue Your original design for marriage. If that's in our own marriage, because we're married right now, then we'll do that even if we're not married, that we would think about marriage and we would talk about marriage in such a way that reflects your original design. And we would encourage those who are married to follow your original design for marriage. God, when we do, the result is going to be that you will be glorified. You will be worshipped. All praise and all glory and all honor will go to the designer will go to the owner. will go, Father, to the Redeemer. May we live out this relationship of marriage for Your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.